glad the words are put up for those songs because that, well, the whole song spoke to my heart. Uh, I know it did to yours as well, but that one phrase, our lives are completely lived by his grace. And that uh, fits perfectly into our text. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we're going to go into our third week, can you believe it, on discussing how grace maintenances Christian relationships in the local church. Remember we talked about um, how do we live God's loyal love towards us among each other. So grace underpins the sharing of God's loyal love to one another. We strive hard to make sure that we can continue to relate to one another, and it's all by grace, by demonstrating God's loyal love. Then we talked last week about the need for uh, understanding of repentance and how biblical repentance, even after salvation, repentance from sin, compels us by grace to maintenance relationships. And today we're going to talk about the pursuit of purity, the pursuit of holiness, really. How does the pursuit of holiness, by God's grace, help us to maintenance Christian relationships in the local church? And uh, that's what we're going to study today, and it's just going to be found in, in one verse. Someone wrote me a letter recently and said, you know, Pastor, um, I don't know if I get a lot out of your messages if you just preach on one verse. We need to cover more ground. And I appreciate that. And typically I do preach on more than one verse, but I'm not going to today. So I hope your hearts are still encouraged. There, there's, just, there's just a lot in this verse. And um, I think there's some, God's word is powerful. Have you ever been reading your Bible um, by yourself and, and well, you're planning on getting through maybe three chapters and you get to one line and it just, just totally enraptures your heart and you just kind of meditate on that phrase or that line uh, for the next few minutes and never get to that goal of reading those three chapters? Well, I trust that this verse will have that influence on us for sure as we understand the pursuit of holiness, personal holiness, is necessary for maintenance in Christian relationships. Our former pastor, when talking about maintenancing relationships, would always remind us of these three words, faith, fact, and feeling. Really, when things get emotional and relationships are divided... It's, it's part of our humanity to just get caught up in the emotion of the division. It says, everyone's got to take a deep breath, have a word of prayer, and let's focus on faith, and then let's gather the facts, the whatsoever things are true about the situation, and then let's talk about feelings that God's grace develops when a situation is resolved properly. I like to use these three words, those have been helpful to us for a long time will continue to be helpful but I like to emphasize identity growth and humanity identity growth and humanity what God's people need to do when relationships are divided are immediately is to immediately view each other in Christ that though there's been human division each saint involved has never been divided from Christ Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, right? We know that from Romans chapter 8. 
And then after we've done that, certainly we can look at spiritual growth. Now, I know there may be some that disagree with me on this, and, and that's fine. We can have a cup of coffee over it later, and, and we'll find out that God's right. <laughs> God's word's always right, isn't it? Now hang on, because this is going to be painful for some. After we're able to clearly identify someone in Jesus Christ because they're born again, trust me, you can always assume there's spiritual growth going on somewhere in their life. Even if the Holy Spirit's convicting them of a wrong of something they've done. Because the Holy Spirit that indwells a believer is never dormant in his ministry, his personal ministry to that believer. Would you agree? It's easy for me to identify someone in Christ and to assume they're growing in some way. If we don't do that, we're never going to be able to discuss the human side of this. Identity in Christ, growth by grace, and then talk about the humanity. Jesus said it's inevitable that offenses are going to come. Even in Christian experience, it's inevitable for every saint around you, including you, to bat a thousand in how they handle relationships with one another. We're all imperfect, but tutored by the grace of God and how to maintenance these relationships. So really, that's what's happening here between the, the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul. Their relationship's been divided. We've been studying that. Paul longs for that relationship to be restored. It's not until Titus brings the message to Paul as to how the Corinthians responded to his severe letter where Paul's heart's comforted, and now he realizes that the Corinthians also desire to have that relationship with him again. And all throughout 2 Corinthians, you can see this principle of identity, growth, and humanity. Identity, growth, and humanity. God's grace, I could use the word, forces us to look to the identity of Christ in each other, assume the growth, so then we can sit down and talk about the human part. It forces us to do that because, remember, the end game is not just the restoration of relationships between one another. The end game is the unity of the Holy Spirit that's been preserved for the cause of the gospel. The gospel goes forth in a much more um, intentional and healthy way from a church to those in our community that need Jesus when the Spirit of God's not being grieved by broken relationships inside the church. Does that make sense? Right. And this is what God's grace is compelling Paul and the Corinthians to do. Right. Our gospel is all about the grace of God and our relationships. We've discovered together regarding our relationships that are in Christ, when they function practically, it's because they're demonstrating the loyal love and their understanding of repentance. And this morning, it's about pursuing holiness. Remember we said last week about repentance? It's to think about a sin the same way God thinks about that sin. The sorrow of this Greek word metanoia, repentance, it's the sorrow of not just turning around. It's the, it's, the, it's the reality of actually thinking 
about our sin the way that God does. Someone said it's the sorrow of real change. No defensiveness, no victimization mentality, no self-justification, no self-defense, and no resentment. Remember this repentance last weekend in verse 10? It leads to salvation. Not just born-again salvation. We understand repentance is necessary for that. This is, this is a post-salvation repentance. This is a salvation that's released. It's to be released from, to be saved from the turmoil of that conflict. Right? To be released from the sin that caused the turmoil between, relation, between people and relationships. Saved from it. This is what God's grace does, and we'll have it detailed here in verse 11. If we don't do that, the sorrow of the world works death. Now, I don't want to be, I don't, I don't believe I'm being dishonest with Scripture. You know, if there's a joy of repentance because we've been released from the, the sin that caused the conflict and the divide, and God's grace has saved us from that practical reality, then I'm assuming that that it's a serious situation when the believer could also face death prematurely because they refuse to allow God's grace to operate back to restoration. It says here, the sorrow of the world works death. Yes, we know that mere remorse and mere regret over sin instead of understanding the repentance that God's grace can give before you're saved can also produce eternal death. I'm not so sure that's exactly what Paul's talking about here in the context because he's talking to believers, okay? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we knew that the apostle Paul had had a conflict with these believers of how they were handling the Lord's Supper and how they were treating one another inside the local church. There was division, there was a winking at sin inside that local church, and they continued to participate in the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion. And Paul said, this is why some of you sleep. This is why some left with unrepentant sin in relationship to their relationship with God and one another in reverent worship. They refused to deal with it and the text says, like, from what I understand, the Lord's long patient with this, but there are some that at times are taken home to an early death, and I've often wondered if that's not the sin unto death that John talks about in 1 John chapter 5. God is patient, isn't he? But we know from Hebrews 12, whom the Lord loves, he what? He chastens. Okay. He's long-suffering, but he chastens. So, They've experienced this repentance. It's brought great joy and rejoicing to Paul's heart, the Corinthian heart. It's led to salvation, which we know it's true repentance because it's led to salvation from the relief of this conflict and then the restoration of the believer. Okay. So that's repentance. Now let's talk about the pursuit of holiness. So this morning, our proposition is quite simple. Grace produces a passionate pursuit of personal holiness in order to maintain relationships in the church. I want you to look at verse 11 with me. For behold, what earnestness this thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you. What, 
vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong, and everything you demonstrated yourselves to be innocent in the matter. Now, you see that last phrase? In everything you did what? You proved yourselves right, to be innocent in the matter. You demonstrated yourselves to be innocent. That word innocent, uh, the root word there is where we get our English word holy. That's where we get this pursuit of holiness in the text. It's from the last line. When true repentance takes place, all these seven explanations or words are used to, to demonstrate that there was some clarity of thought here uh, and clarity of life intention that repentance by God's grace has brought okay, that, has, that has given birth to progressive sanctification, growth in Christ-likeness. Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to one another, right? Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. So there, there's, there's certainly a reality here that, that the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul are growing what it means to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving each other the same way God had forgiven them. Right? And it's caused spiritual growth, holiness. They've proved themselves to be holy. And what's amazing to me about this verb demonstrated, uh, it's in the middle voice in the Greek language, I believe it's an aorist middle, which just basically means there was a point in time where the grace of God operated in your life to absolutely convict you and then convince you that you needed to make a choice to pursue restoration with the believer and not wait for that other believer to pursue restoration with you. There's a personal choice here that's being made. And God's grace does that. God's grace for the believer, through the ministry of the indwelling Spirit of God, always compels his children to move first. Remember we said last week to love first. When there's a stalemate, someone's got to love first. And it's right here. You demonstrated personally to make a move of restoration. And of course, Titus delivered that message. I think it's powerful here to notice that first as we continue on. To be holy is to be set apart. They desire to be personally distanced from the sin that separated them from Paul. So knowing this truth, let's be reminded of some things we discussed last week real quick. Remember, we talked about that when there's a stalemate... In a Christian relationship, as we just mentioned, someone's got to step out and do the right thing. And throughout these several verses that we've been studying, you can see how God's grace operates personally before it does so in mending the relationship. And Paul emphasizes this again more so in verse number 11. You see, when God's grace is working in our hearts, we don't ever have a moment to merely see the ills in someone else's life because we're so wrapped up in knowing the ills of our own heart. Even when you may be the innocent party in the conflict, there must be the introspection necessary in order to bring about a godly humility in approach to the conversation of restoration. In other words, I may be innocent, 
But without recalling how many times I haven't been, I'll never remember what the psalmist says, for without forgiveness, who could stand up? So even the ability to forgive is based on your personal understanding of being forgiven. And this passionate desire to be forgiven is found right here in the first several words of verse 11. He says here, for behold, what earnestness. For behold. Now, there's a lot of energy in those two words in the original language. Paul wants us to stop, I think, <laughs> and just take a look at this verse. I'm not making light of what I said earlier about only preaching on one verse. The two words, for behold, actually demands that we stop and understand the energy towards restoration that the grace of God develops in a believer's heart when there's relationship division. There is no rest at all for the believing heart when they know there's spiritual division among another saint in their home or in their local church. There's no rest. There's no rest until it's mended. We would all agree that there's no rest or slumber, slumbering or sleeping for the Holy Spirit, right? He's God. God never slumbers nor sleeps. So when we've grieved the Spirit of God, wouldn't you say there's somewhat of a 24-7, 365 reality of the Holy Spirit's undying commitment to convict you until you're right with God and then right with man? The Holy Spirit that indwells you will be relentlessly pursuing your heart to right that relationship. That's just what God's grace does and how God's grace operates through the Spirit of God to pursue that. For behold, Paul is relating here that this is a big deal. When two believers desire to sit down and make things right because there's something much bigger going on than just their relationship. Certainly the unity is the goal. Certainly our desire to maintain fellowship is beautiful. Both parties governed by the Spirit of God long to see the grace of God operate by uniting in fellowship again. again. But remember, the greater context before this immediate context is a gospel context. We need to do this for, for a cause much bigger than any one of us. For behold, also remind us that Titus had reported to Paul that each of the Corinthians had an excited desire to take personal inventory of their own lives and their own part in the wrongs that caused their relationship with Paul to be severed and to deal with them. They were excited beyond measure to be restored to fellowship spending so much time just on these two words for this reason, okay? If, if we know there's something not right between us and another believer and we're not excited beyond measure to make sure it's mended and fixed, then there's, there's a virtue of God that's not operating in our lives. And it's His grace. Okay? Now, we can sit and have 10 cups of coffee in a row and discuss with all sincerity that if the grace of God in your life is not making you that uncomfortable 
when you're not right with another believer, you have to wonder if the Spirit of God has not indwelt your body as his temple. That's really what's going on here. The Corinthians were in pain to be separated, and Paul was in great pain. Remember the language of 2 Corinthians chapter 2? He was in agony of soul to the point he could barely participate in the gospel door that had been opened unto him at Troas. Paul was in such guttural, visceral agony. He could not live another day knowing that another believer, let alone group of believers, was divided. And the Spirit of God had worked in the Corinthians' hearts to now respond the same way. So if you're not bothered continuously by the Spirit of God, I wonder how the grace of God even operated in your heart in the first place. Okay? Now, say you're a believer, you are indwelt by the Spirit, then, then the converse is also true. Then you're not really comfortable at all. Like, ever. <laughs> and God does not want you to exist in that reality either. <laughs> right? So, good for us to understand this, um, for sure. They were excited beyond measure to be restored to fellowship. They anticipated this. I'm sure that they would have loved an, an email to be quickly sent back then. Um, a sincere note of regret and reconciliation would have been great. They, were, they would have loved to get that out sooner than later, but they had to wait because that was true snail mail back then, right? But we can never underestimate the value of human communication when it comes to the corrective action necessary to restore human relationships. There's Titus with them, Titus with Paul, Paul with them. All human interaction. I think the story practically plays out with just humans with humans. To teach us a great lesson that this face-to-face -face communication is necessary in the restoration of Christian relationships, uh, to be sure. Right? Isn't it wonderful to be the mailman of exciting news of reconciliation? I, uh, I've received letters from middlemen before relationships that I was separated from, a middleman working hard because they knew that either I or another individual um, had been separated from each other in Christian ministry, and that was uncomfortable for the middle guy. But the middle guy knew both hearts of both sides, and God used that middle guy to bring two back together again. I don't ever want to underestimate not just the face-to-face -face communication, but how God can use a middleman in the restoration of a relationship too. God used Titus. Maybe God the Spirit's influencing someone's hearts here, and you know that a couple believers are at odds, and you want to be the paraclete, you want to be the intermediate, you want to be the go-between just to be used of the Lord to see a relationship reconciled. And we thank God for you too. And you are necessary as well. 
Titus clarified to Paul that the Corinthians were not only excited, they were secondly earnest. See that word here? For behold, what earnestness. This is just simply a serious purpose or to be eager to be seriously seeking righteousness and holiness in the matter of reconciliation. Grace compels us to leave behind the days of spiritual complacency on the matter of the ills that divide us. And grace compels us to fight for the reconciliation, to pursue it with a strong desire. There will be some passion involved to make things right. I think the whole verse is really about serious purpose. Go back on your own time and you'll see that the word what is mentioned seven times. Right? Grammatically, that's, that's given to us to not just bullet these virtues, these fruits of repentance on our pursuit of holiness, but they also demonstrate for us clarity of passion and determination. The seven what's are tied really to this, this earnestness. This all-consuming desire to be right with another one of God's children. I believe the word earnestness is also mentioned first in this list because it's really the primary disposition and action of pursuing true holiness when we truly understand repentance. There's very... Uh, there's a very strong step out by those governed by grace to make the initial and intentional move towards reconciliation. And this serious intent really governs the whole reconciliation process. You know, I suppose the Corinthian believer could assume Paul would forgive them. But they couldn't be assured he would respond with grace and forgiveness because he's just a human. They had hurt him so badly. Again, we remember Paul's words of anguish in the earlier parts of this letter. But to highlight again the language of the phrase has produced squarely places the responsibility of individual, individuals involved to relentlessly pursue reconciliation regardless of how they believe another believer, even the victim in a situation, would respond. They knew Paul was hurt when they repented and they were sending the letter of restoration back or the notice of restoration back with Titus. They still didn't know how Paul was going to respond. But they did it anyway. So many times we hear Christians when relationships are divided in a home or in a local church. Well, I just, I really don't know what's going to be worth. They're, they're just not going to change. We've had this conversation before. It always bothers me when I hear this. Well, they're not going to change. It kind of lets me know you haven't done much self-inventory. And remember where last, last week, restoration never happens unless you really believe you're the worst sinner in the room anyway. Right? They're not going to change. You're assuming their motive at that point. And true repentance never assumes motive. It just obeys. It just does what it has to do to seek to be restored. 
Certainly you might get that response from the one that's been hurt. But then that's on their shoulders. You'll stand before the Lord someday for your pursuit of reconciliation, whether their hearts allow it or not. And this is what the Corinthians are doing. It's what they've personally decided. The Corinthians wanted here in the next phrase to vindicate themselves. What vindication of yourselves? You know what vindication means. Pretty simple. They wanted their names cleared. They wanted to be completely cleared in the matter. The Corinthians wanted an opportunity to prove that they'd changed. That's what grace does. It longs to demonstrate you've been washed from the sin of the wrong you've done. And it longs to prove you've distanced yourself from that sin. Like, I don't want to have any part of it, which leads to the next word, indignation. And it means exactly what it says. I suppose you've heard um, the phrase holy anger or righteous anger. This could be one of those texts that it's taken from. It's okay to hate sin. Would you agree? God hates sin. We can hate sin. And there's there's a special hatred, I guess you could say. When you've truly been repentant of something you've been involved with that causes division, and you've been involved, obviously, personally, there's a special indignation that we have for that sin that hurt my relationship with another believer. And God's grace develops that hatred for that sin. Like, I'm never going to do that again by God's grace. Nothing about this was right from the beginning. It's been all wrong. I'm glad it's over. I've been saved from it. I'm not going there again. I can remember when I was in high school, I had my, started my own painting business and continued it through college and through seminary and even through first 15, 18 years I was here as a pastor, as bivocational. I, I, um, there's certain things you make and make, make mistakes you make in the painting business that you only make one time and, and you never have to go back there again. I can remember I was painting the old Osborne estate up on Esther Street here in Mentor. And I had developed a relationship with Jerry Osborne, now who's passed, but and his whole family. And um, um, that big house on Esther Street has, has a slate roof. It's a very large, I think it's a 27-room home. And I think it had like 14 or 15 bathrooms. And so this is high up, right? And uh, you can't take wood that you normally would and pound it into the roof so you can have some, right? Uh, so you had to get up there and you had to inch your way up because the possibility of sliding off was very real. And I didn't have the money as a college kid to go out and buy all the fancy harnesses and all that kind of stuff. So I was dumb. And I went ahead and took the contract and I did the job. I got up on that roof and I, I leaned over with my scraper to get the underhang and I grabbed before I scraped. And I grabbed the hold of uh, a nest of of wasps. right And and, and uh, there's a lot of things going on in that moment, right? <laughs> right? So there's that, 
wow, it wasn't one sting. I grabbed the whole nest. Like I have a big hand. I grabbed the whole nest. And so then you're triaging like right now, like all these things aren't going to kill me, but falling off this roof probably will, right? And um, thank goodness, uh, along with this large house from this very wealthy man who was very kind to me, uh, came, came uh, eight, nine inch wide old fashioned copper gutters. And I started to slide off that roof and the only hope that I was going to make it home that night was my foot catching that old copper gutter. And it did. And it held. And I'm here. <laughs> I'll guarantee you, for the rest of my years painting, I never reached under an overhang before I looked. It was too painful. It was too painful. Silly illustration to tell you how God's grace is operating for the Corinthian believers here. What indignation. I hated that experience. Didn't want to go through that near-death experience again. So I'm going to avoid it at all costs. God's grace is our tutor to hate sin that we've fallen to so that we don't repeat it again, if at all possible to remember the pain that it caused. I'm just not going there again. It's not worth it. My life's too miserable. The division of this relationship is just unbearable. And he goes on to add to indignation, what fear? What fear? I really believe this to be a holy fear of God, which lends itself to the fear of falling back into the same Sin again. God's grace is our tutor to develop a healthy reverence of our Creator who indwells us in the person of His Spirit. This is a good fear. To fear God to the point where He gives you a fear of sin is good. It's good. And when repentance truly takes place and holiness is pursued, there's a heightened level of not wanting to grieve the Spirit of God in this matter of your life again. And then he says here, what longing? What longing? Remember back in verse 7? Go back there with me real quick. Get a little context here in verse 5 of chapter 7. For even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without, fears within. But God, who comforts the depressed, comfort us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted in you as he reported to us your longing your mourning, your zeal for me. I think this word is used again in the same chapter to demonstrate the same truth, to teach the same truth. Repentance always includes salvation from the isolation that division causes. And God's grace compels us to pursue the relationship again. And we're unsettled in our hearts until it's done. 
so hard but so wonderful, right? The glorious agony of progressive sanctification, right? And you know what? There really is, when, when God's grace is operating in your heart and, and you go and you try to restore your relationship with someone in your home or in the church, God forbid that that division lasts long anywhere. I don't, I don't know of any here at Grace, but it may be there. We're preaching through it and you can deal with it. But whenever I've gone back to try to reconcile a relationship and the party that you talk to makes it irreconcilable, if you're going to continue to be governed by the Holy Spirit, that special pain really never goes away. Does it? It just doesn't. Right? Whether it be Christians around town that used to go to Grace Church, friends that I have around town that are Christian that used to call me my, their friend, all these different things that can happen to me, and, and they've happened to you too. You just can't comprehend how in the world two Christians can't love each other and fellowship and get along. It's just incomprehensible how that can happen. And then you come to a text like this, it's like, wow, it can happen, so why is it not happening? I'm just telling you my own personal struggle. <laughs> why is it not happening? Friends for 40 years. What? Seriously, is grace really operating here? Yes, I'm not perfect. I'll admit that. But Christ is. And I identify you and him. And I assume you're growing. Now let's talk about the humanity. What longing. You long for that relationship to be right with another saint. No rest in the soul until we find that. The Corinthians would stop at nothing to ensure that the relationship had been made right with Paul. I'm sure they waited with the same agony to know Paul's response. I'm sure that they did. As Paul had waited to hear from Titus of theirs. There's always a relentlessness in the spirit-filled heart when they know things just aren't the way they should be with another believer who is in Christ. He says here, zeal. What zeal? This word zeal um, is a fascinating word because it's kind of like uh, the twofold emotion in one word. It means loving something, one grammarian says, loving something so much you hate the thing that it hurts. Loving something so much that you hate the thing that hurts it. We can have zeal for God this way, can't we? You love God so much, we just hate when people speak ill of him or use his name in vain, right? We think of all the names, Philip, Stephen, all the names that people could use in a cuss phrase, and they gotta use my creator and my savior's name. Why is that? Well, because cursing is nothing more than shaking your fist in the hand of ultimate authority, in the face of ultimate authority. People know who their ultimate authority is, else they'd use their own name in vain. Right? We can have zeal for our church this way. We love our church family, and we should. I love our church family. I the greatest church family in all the earth. Here you go, Pastor Tim. He's making your commercial at Grace Church. Look, I like my church, like a lot. I love my church. 
I talk about my church in the city gates. I tell people how much I love you. I'm proud of that. And when someone speaks ill of you, I've got some zeal in my heart. No, it's not true. You don't know my people. You must be talking about that church. <laughs> right? Can't be us. Someone gave you the wrong name. Who's the pastor there anyway? I'd like to know that guy. I'd like to give him a piece of my heart. Get things right there. I do that. I have those conversations with a good spirit because I really love my church. Right? It's loving something so much that you hate what hurts it. Anyone speaks ill of my wife, my children, same response as you. Really? Really? Let's talk. The Corinthians had come to have zeal for Paul. They now hated what caused that relationship division. What avenging of wrong? What avenging of wrong? This is just simply wanting justice to be done. That's it. You're made in the image of God. Part of that being made, image, in the, being made in the image of God is that you have a moral aspect to your nature. God's moral, perfectly moral. Right? That moral aspect is just our ability to discern between right and wrong. And Paul says here, the grace of God tutors our hearts by the indwelling spirit of God to want justice to be done in the situation. Yes, relationship restoration is paramount, but the sin that caused it is to be expunged. It is to be dealt with. Apparently the religious one leading this division in Corinth had been dealt with or was being dealt with. When the under, unrepentant cancer lives and is spreading, it's got to be extracted. That's 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, right? With the incestuous son. Right? A little leaven does what? It leavens the whole lump. Right? So forgiveness and restoration is a big deal. Read Matthew 6. Right? It's a big deal. So, Paul says here again, as we conclude this verse, and by the way, I don't think you should get caught up. I think some of you might be big on numerology in the Bible. Don't get hung up that there's seven what's and seven virtues of repentance here and being the number of perfection. Don't go there. I've heard, I've heard that said. I've read that said. Said that read, whatever. Just, just be careful. Yeah, there are seven what's. There are seven things. I wouldn't, I wouldn't apply that to this context, but I would apply by way of conclusion the reminder of the way the verse ends. In everything you demonstrated yourselves, you made a personal decision prompted by an indwelling spirit and by the grace of God to be innocent in the matter. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I don't think I've had a raised hand invitation here in a decade. I don't know. And I don't think I'm going to have one this morning. But I am going to give you a moment if our pianist can come to the piano.
and I just want her to softly play. A verse of a hymn so that you can make sure that in your own heart you've done uh, exactly what the Spirit of God is prompting your heart to do right now. You know something may not be right with another believer in your home or in this church and you've just decided to lay it aside, maybe sweep it under the carpet, but that tension's still there. Just allow the Holy Spirit of God by His grace to prompt you to be innocent in the matter. Remember, it's the pursuit of your holiness. Be holy of I am holy, God says. It's the pursuit of God's holiness prompted by the Spirit of God. This is good for you. Reconciliation and dealing with the matter is good for you long before it's good for the other party. Two parties that understand that will be restored. And they'll do it with this disposition and this action of 2 Corinthians 7, 11. So just determine in your heart this week, you're gonna have a conversation. Maybe you'll text someone before the baptisms are even over and say, hey, I wanna talk to you because I love you. Act upon it, that's what grace does. It acts upon it, okay? Just do it sooner than later. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the leaving us this historic example preserved in your word for our learning. Help us, Lord, to personally do that and then corporately enjoy the benefit of that learning by your grace. Help us always to remember that grace always compels us to maintenance, unity, that the Spirit of God's produced. It's all of grace. Unity produced by the spirits of grace and our pursuit of the maintenancing of that unity is not of our own effort. It's of supernatural compulsion to do that. And so we know that you will be glorified as we pursue that which you've asked us to pursue. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to sing.